Hello again, friends. It's TJ, the weirdo with a beardo from Wings 93, with another episode of True Crime Tuesday, covering stories of true crimes and unsolved mysteries from across history and across the globe. This week, we continue the story of Charles Manson in True Crime Tuesday, episode number 66. When we left off last time, Charles Mills Manson had spent over half of his first 32 years on Earth either in a reform school or a prison cell. Charles, of course, the byproduct of an alcoholic mother and an absentee father. Raised mostly by his aunt and uncle in West Virginia, Charles was a behavioral problem from an early age and eventually became just too much for his family to handle. So young Charles was sent to a series of reform schools where his negative behavior only became worse after being fueled by physical and sexual abuse by his peers under the watchful eye of those who were supposed to keep him safe. In the years that followed, Charles was in and out of adult prisons for various offenses, including robbery, theft, and prostitution, and even broke several federal laws, which carried more severe sentences than committing the same crimes on a state or local level. Now, by the time Charles was finally released on March 21, 1967, at the age of 32, he had again spent over half his life in prison or some other correctional facility, but he was often released because he was mostly a nonviolent offender. Less than a month after his release from prison in Los Angeles in 1967, Charles Manson headed to the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco, where he was under the supervision of criminology researcher and federal probation officer Roger Smith. Now, until 1968, Roger Smith worked at the infamous Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, where they experimented on test subjects to study the effects of drugs like LSD and methamphetamine. Charles Manson and several of his companions participated in various studies, often visiting Roger Smith at the clinic and becoming regular LSD users recreationally. Now, while taking large amounts of mind-altering drugs, Manson became obsessed with the science fiction novel Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein and was inspired by the free love philosophy that was blossoming in Southern California during the late 1960s. Manson began to preach his own philosophy, which was a combination of the book Stranger in a Strange Land coupled with the Bible, Scientology, the writings of Dale Carnegie, and the music of the Beatles. He quickly began to build quite a following drawing large crowds of people who came to listen to him speak on the campus of UC Berkeley. Incredibly smart, charismatic, and persuasive, Charles Manson began to cultivate a group of dedicated followers who would do almost anything for him, including murder. And that's where part two of our story truly begins. Charles Manson gained his first follower, Mary Brunner, a librarian at the University of California at Berkeley. Manson edged his way into Brunner's life, convincing her to let him stay at her apartment, a temporary arrangement that eventually became permanent. Manson's second follower was a runaway teen named Lynette Fromm. Manson convinced Lynette to move in with him and Mary Brunner at her apartment. Now, Charles Manson gained several more followers, targeting people who were easily manipulated, including those who were social outcasts and emotionally insecure. According to the book Love Needs Care, author David Smith claimed Charles Manson aimed to reprogram the minds of his young followers through the use of LSD and unconventional sexual practices. And according to Smith, act as empty vessels that would accept anything Manson poured, meaning that these individuals would believe pretty much anything Charles Manson told them. 
Manson would often gather the group of people he affectionately referred to as his family to trip on LSD together. Meanwhile, Charles would take lower doses to, quote, keep his wits about him. And meanwhile, he would use these drug-fueled times to brainwash his followers to submit to him. By 1968, he had accumulated roughly 20 followers, all under the supervision of his parole officer, Roger Smith, and many of the staff members of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. Some of the members of Manson's new family included UC Berkeley librarian Mary Brunner, actor Charles Tex Watson, musician and porn star Bobby Busilil, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. Charles Manson continued to grow his family through drug use and prostitution, without interference from authorities thanks to operating under the guise of Roger Smith in the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. And beneath what started out as a ragtag band of hippies and flower children, focused on free love and acceptance, something darker and more sinister was developing. You see, Charles Manson was convinced there was an apocalyptic race war brewing between the black and white populations in the U.S. in the late 1960s. He became an increasingly a white supremacist, convinced that the African-American population was going to, quote, rise up and kill all of the white people, except, of course, for Manson and his family. And Manson referred to the impending race war as Helter Skelter, adopted from the Beatles song of the same name. And what began as a group dedicated to peace and love eventually morphed into a doomsday cult with a thirst for blood and zero remorse for murder. The first and arguably most notable of the killings happened at the home of actress Sharon Tate on August 9, 1969, where Sharon and four others, including her husband and director Roman Polanski, were brutally murdered, stabbed to death by several members of the Manson family, including Patricia Krenwinkel and Tex Watson. The following day, four other members of Manson's family murdered two other individuals, Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. Now, it's alleged that the slayings were at the direction of Charles Manson, although he never carried out any of the killings personally. But the court proceedings that followed gained national attention. When the trials began, Manson showed up to court wearing a fringed buckskin and had an X carved into his forehead. And when he took the stand for the first day of testimony on July 24, 1970, Manson claimed he had X'd himself from your world. The following day, several members of his so-called family also showed up to court with the same X's carved in their foreheads. During an eyewitness testimony of Linda Kasabian, who was present during the Sharon Tate murders, she provided graphic details of the killings that she saw from outside the home. She also testified she was in the car with Charles Manson the following night, when, according to her testimony, Charles ordered the killings of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. Linda Kasabian spent several days on the witness stand, recounting the horrific events she had witnessed. And following her testimony, Linda went into hiding for the next 40 years. In total, dozens of witnesses took the stand to prove the violent and deadly actions taken by Charles Manson and his so-called family of outcasts. Finally, on January 25, 1971, a jury found Charles Manson, along with Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkel, guilty of first-degree murder in all seven of the Tate and LaBianca killings. Also, Leslie Van Houten was found guilty of first-degree murder in the LaBianca killings. And on March 29, 1971, all four of them were sentenced to death, putting an end to the longest trial in American history up to that point, which had lasted a staggering nine and a half months. And even though all four had been sentenced to death, 
Manson and his followers once again got a reprieve when the state of California pulled back the death penalty, ruling it unconstitutional, leaving Manson to be resentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Subsequently, Charles Manson was also convicted of first-degree murder in the 1969 death of musician Gary Hinman and the 1969 death of Donald Jerome Shea. In the years that followed, Manson was transferred to several different prisons within the state of California before landing at Corcoran Prison in the late 1980s after it was discovered he'd been trafficking drugs in his previous prison home. On January 1, 2017, while being held at Corcoran, Charles Manson was rushed to the hospital after suffering internal bleeding, a complication brought on by colon cancer. Then on November 19, 2017, Charles Manson died of a heart attack from respiratory failure at the age of 83. And that brings us to a close for this week's episode of True Crime Tuesday, episode number 66, part two of the Charles Manson story. Join me each week for more stories of true crimes and unsolved mysteries. We'll see you next time.